Unlocking Consciousness. Exploring the mind through the prism of science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics. Welcome to the Hacking Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Baker. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening. And thank you to the people who have been writing in with your comments and encouraging words. It means a lot. I'd love to hear from more of you and whatever suggestions you might have, uh, what you're enjoying about the show, suggestions on how to improve it. It's really great to connect with the audience and, and just get some feedback on how I can better tweak this podcast to, to better serve you. So please do email me if you're interested and have any ideas to share. The email is hacking conscious without the G. So that's the same handle for the email and all the social media. So it's H A C K I N C O N S C I O U S at gmail.com. And it's that same at hacking conscious with no G on Twitter, Instagram, or the Facebook page. Thank you as well to another supporter on Patreon. There's another new one, and I want to thank you so much, David Doyle. David, your support means so much, and I'm extremely grateful. It's this kind of support that is going to make it possible to connect you with great guests and great conversations like the gentleman that you'll be hearing from today. Stephen Bright is a leading voice on psychedelic research and drug policy in Australia. He is a clinically trained psychologist, though he identifies as an ethnopharmacologist, which is a person who studies the human relationship with drugs. He is a leading Australian voice on the role of drug policy on emerging drug trends such as synthetic cam- cannabis and dark web marketplaces. Stephen has worked as a psychologist with the mental health and AOD field for the past 15 years. AOD stands for alcohol and other drugs. He is currently a senior lecturer on addiction at Edith Cohen University in Western Australia. Stephen is a leading advocate for harm reduction and an evidence-based approach to AOD legislation. He is also interested in the role of certain substances, entheogens, to facilitate spiritual experiences and their role in psychotherapy. He is Vice President of Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, or PRISM for short, Australia's only not-for-profit charity with a mission to advocate, fund, and support psychedelic research. And now I give you my conversation with Dr. Stephen Bright. Stephen, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Adrian. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me. Really appreciate it. Not a problem. So I'd love to um, start off, even though I, I just read, you know, your bio for folks. If if you don't mind telling our audience just a little bit about your background and how you became interested in psychedelic research. Yeah. So look, I've been, I'm a clinically trained psychologist and I've worked with people experiencing substance use disorders uh, pretty much for most of my time working as a psychologist. And during that time, I noticed that there was a high prevalence of people who were experiencing comorbid trauma. And it just happened uh, that my PhD scholarship ran out. I needed a full-time job. I was offered one in Melbourne and I took the job. And while I was in Melbourne, um, I saw an opportunity to present a paper on a area of research that I was interested in, which is new and emerging drugs. And it was, it was very new at that point in time. And I wanted a safe place to talk about this issue. And so I attended the Entheogenesis Australis conference uh, many years ago and was blown away by the caliber of the presentations, the international guests, and that sort of gave me an initiation into what was happening in the world of psychedelic research. I went on to continue to present at the EGA conferences, and in 2011, Rick Doblin uh, attended, 
and of course talked about the research that was happening at MAPS with regard to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. And I saw this as a potential golden opportunity to assist people with trauma, uh, given that I'm seeing so many people with trauma experiencing alcohol and other drug use issues. And so we had a workshop with uh, Rick, and that led to the establishment of Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, which is Australia's only not-for-profit uh, incorporated organization that aims to facilitate, fund and initiate research into psychedelic science. Our first plans were to replicate the phase two clinical trial that had been conducted in the US. And our focus was going to be on war veterans because in Australia, more people are dying uh, from suicide as a result of PTSD than are dying in combat. So we thought that would get public support. And we've had a lot of public support. But unfortunately, what we haven't had is the institutional support within academic environments. So last year, we submitted for the second time a... Uh, so last year, for the second time, we submitted our protocol to a university in Victoria. And before it even reached the Human Research Ethics Committee, the pro vice, the deputy pro vice chancellor of research, swooped in and said, "No, we're not conducting this sort of research at our university." And that's not led us to stop. What it has led us to do is try to increase the awareness of healthcare professionals and academics in Australia around the potential of psychedelics and the psychedelic renaissance that's occurring worldwide so that when we uh, attempt to engage in psychedelic science again, uh, hopefully we don't come across those similar academic obstacles. Okay, great to know. So I, I'd love to hear more about, you know, sort of the nature you're aware of your awareness campaign and how you're trying to educate people. But before we go there, can you share a little bit for our audience? What is it about psychedelics that make them particularly effective in working with trauma? And can you perhaps tease out uh, which psychedelics might be appropriate for specific types of trauma or specific audiences? Well, certainly with trauma, it's only been MDMA that's been demonstrated to have efficacy. And there's something special about MDMA. It provides empathy and in turn creates trust within the therapeutic alliance. But in addition to that, it allows people to access the trauma and talk about the trauma with um, a reduction in fear. One of the problems with treating trauma traditionally using the gold standard practice, which is exposure-based cognitive behavioral therapy, is that people either are, are, are so traumatized that they're unable to talk about the trauma, or they are so overwhelmed by it that they're not able to process it. And so there's this window of tolerance people need to be in to be able to process the traumatic event. And MDMA seems to allow people who may have never been able to talk about trauma before to talk about it within this window of tolerance. And what's really interesting is when you watch the therapy videos is that it's quite non-directive, whereas the traditional treatment is quite directive. Um, the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is quite non-directive. The, the patient is... Um, the, the, at the start of the... Uh, in engaging the person in the treatment, they go through a preparation stage and there's an agreement made that when they have their MDMA session, they will uh, sort of go towards the trauma. Um, and from the feedback that I've heard from the therapists who have been able to engage in this therapy, has been that um, people seem to naturally uh, go toward the trauma and not only that, they are able to reframe the trauma without prompting from the therapist. With exposure-based CBT, it's a lot about asking people 
about how they perceive the trauma and getting them to reframe it in a different way. Whereas the MD, while they're under the influence of MDMA, it seems they seem to be able to reframe it themselves. And it also is, is very effective in helping people overcome survivor's guilt because of the nature of MDMA, it sort of allows them to, to, to forgive themselves. In terms of the other psychedelics, I think um, for me, I'm really interested in what's happening at the moment with regard to psilocybin in the treatment of alcohol and other drug use disorders. So at Johns Hopkins, they've completed a trial looking at tobacco cessation that was very successful uh, with a... With, uh, with a success rate that you just do not see in traditional therapies or using pharmacotherapies, nicotine replacement therapies. And at uh, New York University, they've done a similar trial looking at alcohol. And these guys are now recruiting to do large randomized controlled studies um, to provide further support for those treatments. So psilocybin in particular seems to be uh, seems to so psilocybin in particular seems to be demonstrating some efficacy with regard to the treatment of alcohol and other drug use disorders, and I think that makes a lot of sense because we were seeing this research happening before LSD and other psychedelics were prohibited. There was lots of good evidence demonstrating that psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin were effective in treating people who were dependent on alcohol. And it seems to be that the key to this is around the person having a spiritual experience. And we know from the brain scan research that's been occurring at Imperial College that that spiritual experience is probably linked to the deactivation of the default mode network in the brain, which allows a lot of interconnectivity to occur, thus allowing creativity, spiritual experiences, but also people to see their world from a completely different perspective that perhaps they've never had the opportunity to do. And so psychedelics allow people to see their life their world and the people around them from a completely different perspective. And I think that's the key in terms of the use of psychedelics in the treatment of alcohol and other drug use disorders and potentially also depression. So I wanted to ask you about um, spiritual experience as well, but you're saying it's actually the power of psychedelics to explore spiritual experience is actually very tied up with some of these other benefits as well like addiction and trauma? That was certainly the hypothesis in the 1960s. Of course, the methodology was not particularly rigorous back then, but the research that's occurring now is starting to support that. So the study that was recently completed at Imperial College looking at people with treatment-resistant depression found that those people who responded best to the treatment were those whose default mode network was deactivated the most. And we know that the deactivation of the default mode network appears to be associated with um, altered states of consciousness, including spiritual and mystical experiences. So how would we define a spiritual or mystical experience? I, I've read some different criteria, but it, it would seem that the, I'm sure the research teams in question have a few different sets of criteria. How would you define this for our audience? Yeah, so so you, you're quite right. The researchers have criteria. They use mysticism scales, mysticism scale questionnaires that have been developed. And the things that they're looking at is a sense of oneness, uh, a sense of connectedness to the universe and a sense of uh, it being ephemeral in that it's undescribable, um, the experience that they're having. So so they're the key criteria that, that people are looking at when they're looking at what is a spirit whether or not a person is having a spiritual experience. They're looking at whether they are experiencing this sense of oneness, this sense of connectedness to the universe, um, a sense of connection to some sort of source, 
or this just this sense of not being able to talk and put the experience into words so that that ephemeral nature of it I'm reminded of what the famous religious studies professor Houston Smith once said, which is it's some it's something along the lines of the ultimate goal of spiritual life is altered traits, not altered states. And I think this quote really gets at a lot of the promise of psychedelics, whether it's you know being thought about from a religious studies perspective or from a psychology or neuroscience perspective. In your experience and from what you can tell from reading the research, under what conditions are some experiences more likely to translate into long-term lasting positive impacts? And what are some of the reasons that they might not do so for some other people? Well, it's all about integration. So you can have a spiritual experience at arrive under the influence of LSD. And I've been involved in um, harm reduction services, providing trip sitting to people who are having challenging experiences. And sometimes those experiences uh, are because they are having a, a, a spiritual emergence. And so, you know, the, the actual drugs can create these spiritual experiences in all kinds of settings. The question is, what does the person do with it? And so certainly in the sort of recreational environment where, where we're looking after people who are having a challenging experience because they weren't, you know, they weren't planning on having a spiritual experience that night. They were just planning on listening to some good music um, is trying to get them, encourage them to, uh, take that learning home with them and to try to reintegrate integrate it into their everyday life. And so within the psychotherapy protocols, there's a preparation phase, there's the drug phase, and there's the integration phase. And the whole point of the integration phase is to try to take the learnings that the person's gained from the psilocybin or the MDMA or the LSD experience and work with a therapist to understand how they can apply that to their everyday life. And I think where we've seen this done really well is the studies looking at people with terminal cancer because the follow-ups show that not only have the people's quality of life improved, but their relationship with significant others has changed. And this has been confirmed by interviewing their significant others. So during that integration phase, they may be reprioritizing what's important in life, uh, coming to accept in their case, the situation that they have a terminal cancer and they're going to die and be able to do so because of the spiritual experience that they've had. And so by applying that in their everyday life, they have in turn been able to improve their relationships with their significant others and enhance their quality of life. So it's all about integration. So I think the quote that you provided is is very true. It's all very well and good to have a spiritual experience, but what are you going to do with it? Right. Can we unpack that a little bit more in terms of, can you get into the nitty gritty kind of, of what, what are sort of the, the key tried and true and acknowledging it's a relatively new field, but what are sort of the key aspects of the integration process that really seem to work for people? And I'm thinking of people in our audience who, who might be experiencing psychedelics, but not in this sort of formal setting where they, you know, have access to that kind of information. Yeah, that, that it, it's a really good question. Um, so I often see people, particularly with ayahuasca, um, that I speak with just out of, um, I often speak to a lot of people who have taken ayahuasca just through the networks that I've developed through my role in PRISM and my interest in psychedelics. I mean, people make contact with me and they've often talked about, um, the ayahuasca 
uh, providing them with a certain message and them taking that message on board and that then leading to a complete change in their life trajectory. So they may have gone on to make a documentary or change jobs or leave their partner but there was something, there was some message that was in the ayahuasca experience. With MDMA and trauma, it's about trying to, um, trying to consolidate the experience that they've had with the MDMA and the reframing that they've had so that they're able to, so that they're able to, um, see it from that perspective in their ongoing life. And I think with, with psilocybin and depression, it would be similar in that the person's experienced this spiritual experience or they've seen that, you know, the way that they're looking at the world, there's other ways of looking at the world compared to the way that they've been looking at the world. And so again, consolidating that so that they're able to um, try to then understand, well, if there is this other way of seeing the world, how do I, how do I change my behaviour so that it's consistent with this new way of seeing the world? And that's really the evidence of where integration has been effective is what you're seeing is behavior change from the drug experience. If the person takes the drug, has a spiritual experience and doesn't change anything in their life, then they haven't really integrated the experience into their life because they've not taken on board uh, whatever messages that they were given or uh, whatever new ways of seeing the world that they were provided with, they haven't taken that information and translated it into their everyday functioning. And I think for many people who take psychedelics, uh, you know, just, just for some fun, that can be um, one of the barriers or maybe not one of the barriers for people who take psychedelics recreationally, one of the limitations that they may have is not spending enough time after the actual experience trying to integrate what they've learned and figure out how they can apply that into their real life. Because, you know, we are, we're a 24-7 society. And so, you know, we go to work, we, we finish work, we have our psychedelic experience and then we're back at work. I think people um, outside of a clinical setting need to ensure that they give themselves time, set aside time after the psychedelic experience so that they can contemplate what it all means and how they can use that information to change their life and to change the relationships that they have with the people that they love and the people that they're surrounded by. You brought up ayahuasca, and I'm glad you did. I wanted to ask you something on this note because earlier when we first started talking about trauma, you said that MDMA is what's really shown the most promise, and then you also discussed psilocybin a little bit. Um, now, I know you also mentioned veterans, and what really jumped out for me was, and I actually had someone on the show to talk about it, was that uh, there seems to be a lot of promise in terms of veterans working with ayahuasca and, and reports about them helping with their PTSD. And I'm wondering sort of what you make of that or did you not mention it just because the, the actual research on it was not really completed yet? Yeah, so I think with ayahuasca, the, the research needs to be more rigorous. There's certainly been observational studies which support the idea that ayahuasca could be useful in the treatment of PTSD. I do think ayahuasca is a very powerful medicine and uh, that certain people may respond better to it than others. And I think that's some of the research that we really need to be working on at the moment is, is figuring out the right fit for the right person. See, one of the advantages of working with MDMA is the experience is pretty consistent. 
Everybody has a fairly consistent response to MDMA, whereas ayahuasca, the experience can vary significantly from person to person, and that's going to depend on the personality of the person that's taking the ayahuasca, the setting they're taking it in. There's lots of variables that are going to impact on that, but it's much less predictable. And so I would caution people with PTSD, uh, you know, in terms of using ayahuasca, just because you never know where you're going to find yourself. I think there is therapeutic potential there. We need to do more research to figure out who is going to benefit most from ayahuasca in with regard to treating PTSD, there's definitely some evidence there, but we until we know who's going to benefit most from it, and more importantly, who might experience negative effects from it, um, I, I tend to caution people uh, with regard to approaching ayahuasca as a medicine. Um, I think, and, and, and I'm doing it, I, I, I do this just... Because I do this just because I think it is a very powerful medicine and it is a little unpredictable and, you know, people have such varying experiences from it, whereas uh, certainly with MDMA it, it's much more predictable and, uh, and so there's less variables at play. Psilocybin, though, is also quite unpredictable. And so in the clinical studies, I mean, they're being conducted in a, uh, an aesthetic environment, but it's a consistent environment. They listen to music that's been specifically prepared for them so that there's consistency happening there as well. But nonetheless, the people have quite varying experiences and then it's so important that they are with the psychotherapist to try to understand what all of that meant and ultimately then be able to integrate it into their ongoing, um, you know, their ongoing everyday life. Yeah, there does some seem to be something fundamentally different around uh, about MDMA. I mean, just from personal use and my friends have said this as well you know there's when you're on mdma as opposed to other psychedelics you don't have the fundamental experience of being of things being very out of control the way that you would on psilocybin or lsd or ayahuasca at least that's how i would frame it is does that sort of get at what you're um saying as well in terms of the what makes psilocybin perhaps uh less predictable yeah, I think that's a really nice way of putting it in terms of control. With MDMA, there's a sense that you're in control of what's going on with the experience. With psilocybin and, and perhaps more so with ayahuasca, there's a lot less control. Um, saying that, working with people who have taken um, you know, high doses of LSD at, at raves and so forth, um, usually they're challenging experiences for the same reason. They are not able to control the situation. They're not able to control the experience that they're having. And the more that they try to control it, the more upsetting and distressing they become because ultimately they've hopped on a roller coaster ride and they're just going to have to sit on that roller coaster ride until the ride ends. And so we reframe it. If they they think they're having a bad trip, we reframe it that they're having a challenging experience, and we encourage them to actually move forward toward the experience. And my anecdotal experience has been that people who uh, approach rather than try to avoid the experience, thus don't try to control the experience, tend to have better outcomes and um, end up resolving perhaps some personal issues that they've been having as they start to come down and are usually very grateful that, that, you, that you sat with them during that period of time 
and encourage them to, to keep going toward rather than avoid the, uh, the challenging experience that they're having. And so I think control is a very important um, component. And some people like to be in control. And so as a general rule of thumb, I would say that psychedelics may not be for everybody. And in particular, they, in, <clears throat> and in particular, they may not be for people who need to have a sense of control or have difficulty uh, experiencing a loss of control because they're going to try to fight it and try to get control and it's going to make the situation worse. Unless, of course, they've got somebody with them that can, that can help them try to uh, let go and move toward the challenging experience. Um, but nonetheless, people who uh, like to have a lot of control over their environment, over their life, are probably going to respond less positively to the classic psychedelic drugs. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've sort of said that same thing to friends as well who have asked. I had one friend of mine say, who has done psychedelics, say, oh, it wasn't for me, you know, and he said, you know, I like alcohol because he goes, I get that. In fact, I'm not really I'm in control, but I think I'm in control. Yeah, <laughs> yeah alcohol's, but, alcohol's a bit of a, um, a nasty drug in that way because the person feels like they're in control because of the pharmacology of it, it, it's turning off the prefrontal lobe, the part of the brain that's sort of important in executive decision-making, uh, executive functioning, and they're basically running on the limbic system, which is the, uh, uh, the more primitive parts of the brain, which is why you sort of see people who are intoxicated um, trying to engage in either fighting or fornication, um, but they... Uh, but they tend to think they are in control and that's what makes it so dangerous in terms of alcohol and driving because the person feels that they're in control and that they are able to drive they have that sense of confidence if you compare that with cannabis for example the person is clearly identifying that they are not with cannabis for example, as a comparison, the person identifies that they're intoxicated and they tend to adjust the way they drive as a consequence. And so certainly while I wouldn't recommend, you know, driving on cannabis, um, dri driving on cannabis has far less potential for mortality uh, than, than driving uh, intoxicated on alcohol. And I think we've seen this in Colorado with the increase in motor vehicle accidents, but a decrease in fatal motor vehicle accidents. The only, the only caveat to that is, is if you mix cannabis and alcohol, it's like a multiplication effect because not only do you have the impairment of the alcohol, the impairment of the cannabis, but you also have the confidence of the alcohol in thinking that you're not impaired. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That, those are interesting stats about Colorado. I wasn't aware of those. And for anyone who is trying to point to the uptick in accidents, you know, I would also point out that, of course, there are all these other factors, right, in these studies. And Colorado is a state that's experiencing very rapid growth. So I don't know if the study accounted for per capita accidents, but that could certainly be another factor as well, is just a lot of people are moving to Colorado. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a controlled study, but it, it just does kind of highlight the, uh, the, the fact that um, I think what they're seeing there is a decrease in people drinking intoxicated from alcohol and an increase in people driving intoxicated uh, from cannabis. And in turn, yes, they may be seeing some increase in motor accidents, but they're minor accidents. You know, it's not somebody doing 160 down the freeway like they might see uh, when a person's intoxicated from alcohol. I came across a headline yesterday that said it was something along the lines of, you know, talking about how beer sales are down and millennials aren't as interested in drinking beer. They express relatively more of a preference for cannabis, 
which of course is uh, bad news to the alcohol industry, which is one of the main opponents of you know cannabis reform for this reason, which people say they feared for a long time. I'm wondering if, if you've seen any information like that and also if you can kind of sketch out the obstacles to reform in Australia for us because I know that they're a little bit higher in Australia and the laws are certainly behind the U.S. So where does the opposition come from? Is it from the bev- you know the alcohol industry? What other kind of hurdles are really in your way down there? So I agree that uh, certainly in the U.S., the alcohol lobby has um, been an obstacle for cannabis reform. It's really unclear in Australia as to what impact the alcohol lobby has had, though I actually think in Australia it's the pharmaceutical companies that may be providing some of the the obstacles in that uh, a lot of the medicinal use of cannabis, which is uh, what we've just sort of rolled out in Australia, is looking at treating disorders such as chronic pain, which would normally be treated with opioid drugs or treating anxiety, which would be treated with benzodiazepine pharmaceutical drugs or treating uh, insomnia or, you know, there's so many conditions that medicinal cannabis can be used for, which pharmaceutical companies have drugs. uh, And so there's quite a very strong medical model in Australia. It's very difficult at the moment for patients to access cannabis. And one of the reasons for that is that only specialists are able to prescribe. So you have to be a pain specialist or an oncologist or or such to prescribe. And the pain specialists are actually, um, not all of them, but certainly some of them are a little reticent to prescribe because they're saying where's the re- where's the evidence where's the research and so Australia's um, conducting quite a lot of research at the moment though the results aren't going to be out for some time which is um, not much help for the people who are currently trying to access medicinal cannabis. One of the arguments I recently heard from uh, somebody working uh, as a researcher but also a specialist in oncology was that Australia is unique in that we have such a strong medical model that uh, we don't have the confounding factor of cannabis being widely used um within Australia for medical reasons, which means that they're able to conduct more controlled studies. I guess um, some of the responses that I've seen to that have been, well, have a look at the research that's been done in Israel. Um, There's been quite a lot of research conducted there, which is very robust, and maybe we don't need to be uh, as strict as we are at the moment in terms of Uh, patient access to medicinal cannabis given that research but in saying that it's certainly um, providing Australian researchers with a unique opportunity to engage in research with medicinal cannabis because there's been so little rigorous research coming out of the US because of the embargo that the Uh, National Institute of Drug Abuse have put on allowing researchers to access cannabis for research purposes. And so while there has been research happening in the US, it hasn't been as rigorous as it could have been because of those barriers. Now, it's really good to see that Um, you know, MAPS working with uh, some other uh, researchers in the US have been been able to overcome this obstacle and they are doing a study looking at medicinal cannabis for the treatment of PTSD and they're getting the cannabis from NIDA and so they're able to conduct the methodological rigorous research that needs to be conducted. But up until now, NIDA have been really difficult in not giving the researchers access to the cannabis that they need to be able to conduct the rigorous research that's sort of 
required. And so there's a catch-22 there. You know, the, the practitioners are saying, well, where's the research? And the researchers are saying, well, we can't do the research because NIDA won't give us the cannabis. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. <laughs> you probably know the funny story. There's like one guy who's authorized to do the research or one university. It's the University of Mississippi. or They're, they're the only one that's al at least allowed to grow it. It's just such a bizarre anachronistic proposal. Um, but I, I would love to sort of segue a bit because you brought up, you know, we've now compared psychedelics to alcohol and opioids. And I'd, I'd love for you to kind of sketch out a bit for our audience who might not be as familiar. What are the relative, let's see, maybe you can start with talking about what's the toxicity, what we know the known toxicity about using these substances, and how does that compare to alcohol, opioids, cannabis? With, with the classic psychedelics, the threshold between an effective dose and a lethal dose is extremely high. So it is very difficult to overdose on most prototypical psychedelics. Mescaline is probably one that stands out where there is a lower threshold because of its structural similarity to amphetamine. But psilocybin, LSD, DMT, we don't have um, we don't have any data on what an overdose might look like. As you listeners and yourself may be aware, there's been no reported fatality from overdose from LSD or psilocybin or cannabis. Certainly there's been issues with misadventure, but there's never been an overdose from those substances. When we look at alcohol, the threshold is a little finer. But because of the way alcohol is packaged and beveraged, particularly, you know, in beers and ciders, uh, it is more difficult to overdose on. Though in Australia, we had 222 overdoses from alcohol last year. Um, <clears throat> so it, it certainly is possible to overdose from, but it's... Uh, about taking sort of large quantities of spirits and Australia's uh, banned certain liquors that, uh, you know, are 100 and, uh, what do you call it, proof? Yeah, so Australia's banned liquors that are, you know, 195 proof, for example, um, as a way to try to prevent alcohol overdose. Um, MDMA has a much lower threshold. And so people need to be careful with MDMA, um, particularly because it's an illicit drug. Uh, people are not able to access it from their local pharmacy. And so the potency or the purity of the drug can vary quite widely. And an overdose from MDMA can be fatal for some people from up to 250 milligrams. And, you know, they're using 125 milligrams in therapeutic settings. They've now reduced that to 70 milligrams. But um, there's, a, there's a number of variables there. Some people don't metabolize MDMA as well as others. There have been a handful of cases where people have actually overdosed on MDMA because they've taken pills that have been uh, quite strong and they've double dropped or they haven't done their research and they've taken, you know, a whole gram of MDMA. Um, so MDMA, out of all the drugs we've been talking about so far, excluding the opiates, has the highest potential for overdose in terms of that ratio between what's an effective or therapeutic dose and what's a lethal dose. With opioids, it really depends on the particular opioid that we're talking about, but certainly things like heroin and fentanyl have uh, quite a low threshold between a therapeutic dose and an effective dose. And when we're talking about, about drugs like fentanyl, where, where you're seeing uh, a crisis in the US due to uh, fentanyl overdoses, heroin being sold uh, with containing fentanyl, because fentanyl is active at such a low dose, it's very difficult for people to be able to produce 
um, a, a heroin-like product and ensure that there's uh, not too much fentanyl in the actual, um, you know, in, in the product that they're producing. Um, and then you've got car fentanyl, which has recently hit the US, which is really nasty. I mean, that's an, it's, car fentanyl was developed to take down large animals. It's been used in terrorist attacks. It's an overdose can be 25 micrograms. You know, that, that's a microdose of LSD. And, it's going to be very difficult for people who are trying to make money by using drugs like carfentanil and putting them into uh, counterfeit medications or putting them in heroin and trying to, you know, increase their profit margins to prevent people from overdosing because at drugs with drugs that are active at such low doses without the right equipment there's just no way of ensuring that um, that there's consistency in the the drug that's being manufactured and and distributed. So, Stephen, if you, I'm just thinking, if if you could sort of speak to someone now who's listening who might be open minded, but they're a little skeptical of, you know, psychedelic research, um, what would you say to them? I would say read the literature. Um, I, I, I am a researcher, so I base, I'm a researcher and I'm a clinician. And so I engage in what's evidence-based practice. So I look at what the evidence says and base my practice on what the evidence says. And there is a plethora of evidence indicating that psychedelic drugs, including MDMA, it's not a prototypical psychedelic drug, but there is just so much evidence coming out that these drugs have therapeutic potential. So simply look at the evidence. I think that's a great place to, uh, to close. Uh, unless you have anything else to add. I know one thing that I, I'd love to give you an opportunity to do is to um, share how people can get in touch with you, how they can find you on social media, and also if you have any upcoming speaking engagements. Um, so people get in, can get in touch with me via email. Um, if they search my name and Curtin University or Edith Cowan University, they'll certainly come across my email address. I have a Twitter account at Stephen with a PHJ Bright, um, where I uh, only tweet drug-related uh, information, and certainly a lot of that is around psychedelics. Um and in terms of uh, upcoming speaking engagements, uh, I don't have anything coming up in the near future. I will be attending the EGA conference held in Melbourne this December. I've been part of the organising committee and reviewed the abstracts. And um, I would certainly recommend any of your Australian listeners to get in before tickets sell out. It's an amazing conference with international speakers, including Dr. Rick Doblin and Dr. Ben Sessa, who uh, Dr. Ben Sessa has been uh, approved to conduct research into MDMA-assisted therapy for people with trauma experiencing substance use disorders. So I'm obviously a huge fan of Ben. Um but yeah, I'd, I'd highly recommend if you're in Australia or if you're traveling to Australia to try to get yourself a ticket to EGA. And outside of that, um, I've just recently moved from Melbourne to Perth. Perth is like living in another country in many respects. It's a long way from uh, Sydney or Melbourne. And so I'm hoping to um, engage the Perth community with regard to psychedelic research and psychedelic science at an upcoming conference next year um, that's being held in Perth. Perth is a small capital city in Australia. 
it's a long way from everywhere else. And so I hope by having an opportunity to speak with the local Perthians that um, there might be an opportunity there to increase awareness and highlight what's happening around the world and point out that there's really nothing happening in Australia and Australia really needs to engage in this research because if we don't, we're going to find ourselves in a position where people with depression and PTSD either continue to suffer, commit suicide, or travel to the US when it becomes an FDA-approved medicine. Should it become an FDA-approved medicine, we haven't done the trials. We don't have the experience in Australia to be able to provide this therapy for veterans and other people with PTSD. We really need to get started on this research now. The, the question is, when is Australia going to engage in psychedelic research? Yeah, well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, Stephen, to help facilitate awareness around this conversation. And really looking forward to meeting in person at the EGA conference in Melbourne soon. Oh, you're going to be there. I will be there. Well, I look forward to meeting you there, and I appreciate uh, you having me on the podcast. Thank you for your time, Stephen. Really appreciate it. You're most welcome, Adrian. Okay, we'll talk soon. Take care. Talk soon. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hackingconsciousness. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you found the conversation with Dr. Bright informative. One difficult aspect of having these conversations, especially something like the one I just had with Dr. Bright, is as I think about the audience really finding the right balance between those of you who are already very familiar with this research and just going deeper into something like the default mode network and talking about the research out of Imperial, and also thinking about those of you who might be newer to this research in this conversation and wanting to find that balance where we keep those uh, more experienced and knowledgeable listeners still engaged. But also, I, I really want to make sure that there's a really baseline of knowledge for people out there uh, regarding, for example, the toxicity of substances, that conversation we had towards the end. I'm sure that many people were familiar with that, but I also think it's really important to um, make sure that a lot of people who might not be familiar with that information already have a chance to hear some of those statistics. So if you have any thoughts on how best to strike that balance or what you thought of that conversation, if that was a little too much of a deep dive for you or whether uh, we could have sort of focused more specifically on certain aspects, I would welcome your suggestions and your thoughts at Hacking Conscious without the G, so H-A-C-K-I-N-C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S at gmail.com. You can email me there or it's that same handle at Hacking Conscious, no G, at Twitter or on Instagram, but I would recommend Twitter for a conversation like that. So anyways, thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate your curiosity and your support and talk to you next week. Hacking Consciousness, exploring the mind through the prism of science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics.